So if you talked to me last October, what was keeping me up uh, at night was uh, being at the end of six months where we had a record low snowpack, a record warm and dry summer, uh, wondering when the fall rains were going to return to replenish our reservoirs. And the answer is they returned on uh, Halloween. Uh, and in a three-week period, we went from the lowest levels in our reservoirs in the last 30 years to being at flood control stage. That's the voice of Ray Hoffman, who was the director of Seattle Public Utilities when I interviewed him earlier this year. He gives more detail in today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast about how the public utilities are affected by the economic and population growth in the region. I'm Jeff Schulman, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast also features an in-depth interview with the CEO of Seattle City Light, Larry Weiss. So our Broad Street substation, which is uh, down below Seattle Center, that, that's reached a capacity limit, and we have capacity limits in all these stations. So what happens is if we get too much growth and we need to build another station to provide more distribution circuits because the existing substations cannot handle it. And that's really at a place where we are. Before we begin today's episode, I want to invite you to join me for Seattle Growth Podcast Live, where we'll be taping the next episode of the Seattle Growth Podcast on October 17th at the Impact Hub. I'll be interviewing an incredible panel of speakers who will also be taking questions from you, the audience. The panel includes the well-known philanthropist and civic leader who co-founded Social Venture Partners, serves as the vice chair of the National Audubon Society of Directors, and has led countless other civic initiatives in Seattle, Maggie Walker. She will be joined by former CFO of Microsoft and current partner at the venture capital firm Ignition Partners, John Connors. Rounding out the panel is the president of the Port of Seattle Commission, which has a roughly $30 billion impact on the region, John Creighton. The Burke Center for Entrepreneurship organized this event, and you will not want to miss it. You not only get to engage the panel during a podcast recording, you get to interact with them and others concerned about Seattle's growth at the preceding reception, where there will be appetizers and a cash bar. To register for this unique event, visit www.seattlegrowthpodcast.com backslash live. Previously, there was a special episode of Seattle Growth Podcast examining City Council's proposal to set restrictions on how the city can respond to unsanctioned encampments. I sat down with Rob Johnson, the District 4 City Council member who co-sponsored the proposal. You know, we hear a lot of folks in my neighborhood in Ravenna who have said, I don't think it should be okay for people to sleep in tents on the path through Ravenna Park. But there might be a couple of places in the park where we're not doing restoration and they're not for active use, where it could be okay for folks to be. I think that we're gonna have to manage that on a kind of case-by-case basis. I don't have a good specific location for you, but that Ravenna example is the best I can give. I sat down with Tim Burgess, the citywide elected city council member who expressed his dissenting opinion. The basic core problem with the ordinance is that for the first time in city history, it will allow these unsanctioned ad hoc encampments on public property uh, around the city. Um, I don't think that's a smart move. It certainly does not do anything to cure homelessness for those individuals. In fact, it perpetuates it. I also brought you a voice from outside of government, the CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association, John Scholes. The current approach to clearing tent encampments hasn't really worked for the neighborhood. So the current system and approach, I think, is is not where anybody wants it. However, the piece of legislation that was proposed earlier this month, uh, I think, would have uh, significant negative impacts on 
not just downtown, but neighborhoods throughout the city. And in its current form, establishes essentially a right to camp in many public places. This is a proposal that can be passed by the end of October. So I encourage you to get informed now by listening to the podcast and then share your voice. As we transition to today's episode, you're going to get an inside look at how Seattle's public utility infrastructure was suited for recent growth and what is being done to prepare for further growth. The Puget Sound region added roughly nine new jobs per hour and seven new people per hour in 2015. According to the Office of Planning and Community Development, the city permitted a net gain of almost 7,000 new housing units in 2015. And the Seattle Times reported that there's an average of one home torn down per day. That means there's lots of changes to the city's physical landscape. And that's not even including the Downtown Seattle Association's estimated 14 million square feet of office space in the development pipeline and 5,200 hotel rooms being built in the city. With all these changes underway, the question becomes, is the city ready for them? Is there enough drinking water? Can the city produce and distribute enough electricity to satisfy the needs of these developments? Can the wastewater and solid waste management keep up? And who pays for any necessary improvements along the way? To get answers to these questions and more, I sat down with Ray Hoffman while he was serving as the director of Seattle Public Utilities. I'm here at Seattle Municipal Tower with the director of Seattle Public Utilities, Ray Hoffman. Ray, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Uh, Let's start with what are some exciting things going on here in Seattle Public Utilities? Well, in Seattle Public Utilities, uh, let's start so your audience knows who we are and what we do. So we provide drinking water, wastewater, stormwater, garbage recycling, and composting services for the residents and businesses in the city of Seattle. So we're a basic service provider, 24-7, 365. When our services don't go well, uh, our customers hear about it. With that in mind, what are some of the projects you've got underway that are exciting you most? Well, we have a lot of major infrastructure projects, which you will only see while they're being built because inevitably most of the work that we do ends up underground. So if you were to tour the city right now, uh, if you went down to Seward Park, for example, you would notice this gigantic hole uh, in the ground that's large enough to store uh, 2.6 million gallons of combination of stormwater and sewage. And it's designed to capture overflows uh, that would otherwise be going into Lake Washington. And it's part of a federal program called Combined Sewer Overflows. And we're reducing the amount of effluent that gets into water bodies. So we have a 10-year half a billion dollar program, that's an example of a very big project. In the last five years, we've seen quite a bit of population and economic growth here in Seattle. What challenges has that growth in the past uh, created? So uh, you can divide demands on infrastructure into uh, a couple different categories. Uh, On the good news front, uh, many of the services that we provide are scalable. So uh, the landmass in Seattle is a finite space. So if we're not building out, we're building up. Uh, and if we need to collect recyclables or garbage from uh, more units, if we're moving to a multifamily future, uh, more so than the traditional single-family housing stock, we can scale that up. It's more trucks, it's more containers, uh, it's more programs to reach target audiences. Uh, and the same with uh, our water supply. Uh, one of our biggest issues that we're tackling with water supply is studying and analyzing what potential impacts climate change has on the resiliency of our water supply. Uh, For your audience, uh, the water that Seattle drinks comes from two mountain reservoirs. They're the Cedar and the Tolt River. It's what we call first water. 
That means that nobody lives up there. Uh, the only thing that is in the water is what falls from the sky or what uh, fish and local critters put into it. So it's, it's very high quality water. Our question is, is with the change in snowpack and precip dynamics, uh, is that supply going to be adequate given not only demands in Seattle, but in our regional customer base as well? And if we uh, come to the conclusion that it's not, where are we going to get more water from? And of course, there's a lot of innovation uh, on the drinking water front um, as up and down the West Coast and the Southwest, uh, because folks are challenged to find enough water to uh, pursue all of the different purposes that they have. So drinking water, uh, we're gonna look at the resiliency of our supply, and we're gonna look at the age and integrity of our infrastructure. Uh, generally speaking, the water supply infrastructure was built big by our predecessors and out of very good materials. So when we get growth, uh, we have the capacity to deliver today. If you contrast that with drainage and wastewater, uh, 90, uh, wait a minute, 50% of our wastewater infrastructure is 90 years or older. Uh, and Seattle's not all that old of a town. What that means, and it's not unique to the city of Seattle, is we're going to be entering into a replacement cycle. And many of these things are quite deep and in the middle of the road. So when you replace underground infrastructure, um, it's a bit of a challenge and it's a bit of an activity that impacts people's daily life. If we're out in the street, we affect traffic. And so uh, many utilities are looking at the age and the quality of their infrastructure, uh, determining what the appropriate replacement cycle is. It's known as asset management in the industry. And also looking at the capacity. Uh, is it big enough? Uh, does it go to enough places? Is that a wholesale project that's going to take care of it all at once, or can it be done in piecemeal? It's going to be the latter. Uh, so our infrastructure was uh, built and integrated over decades uh, as the growth came to Seattle. Uh, and that's true for both drainage and wastewater and drinking water. Uh, so we have some pipes, for instance, down in Pioneer Square that are 110 years old, and we have some pipes that were put in the ground in the 1970s. And uh, infrastructure can have a useful life of 70 to 100 and 50 years, but it's making that assessment based on when it was put in, what it was made of, and how it's holding up to date. So a replacement cycle could last decades. Have you put a dollar value on how much that decade-long project, decades-long project would be? We, we haven't. Uh, what I will tell you is that replacing infrastructure is expensive. If you follow the national dialogue on this topic, uh, you'll find that uh, the national groups uh, are giving the U.S. Uh, low grades on investing enough in the replacement of their infrastructure. The older your city is, the bigger your challenges are. Uh, West Coast isn't as challenged as the East Coast and the Midwest because their infrastructure is that much older uh, and they're, they're further into the replacement cycle than we are. Uh, but I can tell you that we have over 1,500 miles of drainage and wastewater infrastructure underground, over 2,000 miles of drinking water infrastructure. Uh, and at some point or another, you got to replace all of that stuff. And where do the resources come from? That's a great question. So um, we are a utility, so we have customers, and we send out bills. So if you live in the city of Seattle, approximately every 60 days, you get a bill from Seattle Public Utilities. And on that, uh, there's the charge for your drinking water, your wastewater, uh, and your garbage and recycling services. That rate includes enough revenue to fund a capital program, a reinvestment program. And the mayor and the city council get to decide on what the appropriate level of investment is 
uh, as it translates into how much they are willing to raise our customer rates in any given period of time. You're 100% funded from the users of the services? Other than the occasional uh, grants that we get from federal governments, yes. So we're known as an enterprise fund, uh, and the money we collect from our customers goes straight back into those systems. So, for example, if you're paying your drinking water bill, uh, it doesn't go to the library system, and it doesn't go to public safety. It goes back into the drinking water system, and that's a state law. If more people come in and more people hook up to it, are there costs of hooking more people into the system? There are. Uh, and generally those are called, uh, they go by various terms. It can be called a connection fee, a system development charge. But anytime you see one of the cranes uh, around Seattle with a big hole in the ground, uh, just visualize that eventually that new building is going to have to hook up for a wide variety of utility services. They're going to have to hook up for water, drainage, wastewater, gas, electric, uh, perhaps uh, 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 cable and or uh, fiber optic or telecom. So all of the things that go to making a building an operational building, uh, when you do a new one, uh, there are costs associated both for the city and the developer uh, on getting that building hooked up. Some of the cost is borne from your budget, from the people using your services, and some of that cost is borne by the developers building the project that, that builds that? That's particular. correct. So an example would be uh, if a, uh, if a if a water line is no longer adequate to uh, deliver enough water uh, to the area that it's in and it needs to be upsized, uh, that is spread out over the whole customer base. But if the customer wants to connect to that line, uh, the cost of going from the building through the street into the line is borne by uh, the developer. Or another example would be is if a, if a developer is building in an area of the city where there is no infrastructure, so we're not completely gridded out, uh, many times there will be a requirement for the developer to uh, pay for the cost of putting in that uh, missing piece of infrastructure. So as you look forward for the next five to ten years, what do you see as your biggest challenges associated with growth? The, you know, the level of economic activity uh, in this city right now is is pretty superheated, and uh, managing workloads uh, with a stable workforce can be a challenge. So, for instance, uh, if we're installing uh, three times the number of taps uh, that we did in 2009 in 2015, uh, and our workforce is about the same size, it means it's either going to take us longer or we're working overtime. Uh, right now we have crews working seven days a week trying to keep up with the installation of new taps for new buildings, doing overtime while looking at additional resources. So uh, a lot of this can come down to having the right people in the right place at the right time. Uh, and you wanna staff so that you don't staff to the peak and you don't uh, staff to the trough, but you staff at where you think long-term the most predictable level of work is gonna be. Are there any other challenges um, I, I would offer you the one, you know, uh, the, long, the longer term challenge for us, uh, and it's reflected in both drinking water and drainage and wastewater, is what does climate change mean uh, to the resiliency of our system? So an example I would give you is if we move from classic northwest Seattle drizzle to uh, a future where there's more short duration, high intensity rainfall events, uh, our drainage system wasn't designed to deal with that. Uh, that means we either got to increase capacity uh, and and or uh, the ability of the system to deal with it. Uh, our movement into green infrastructure, uh, sometimes called green stormwater infrastructure or natural drainage, is an approach to use the right of way in additional in addition to uh, classic 
uh, underground pipes and pump systems to augment our capacity uh, to deal with things like that. So we're, we look at rainfall uh, as it hits the city. We look at rainfall as how it hits the watershed. We look at snowfall and what it means for the watershed. Um, and how climate change affects us in a regulated environment where we're responsible for stream flows for endangered species such as salmon. Do you have kind of a number as to how many people our water system, you know, our, our water sources in terms of the drinking water, how many people that those systems can accommodate? I, I'll get to that in a roundabout way, which okay. is uh, right now uh, our drinking water system serves 1.4 million people, and we're in the year 2016. Uh, in uh, the year 1960, uh, we were serving 400,000 people less using the same amount of water. So one way of looking at this is there's built-in opportunities for efficiencies that extend the utilization of your existing resource. And uh, we're in a great position so far. Uh, like I said, we're serving 400,000 people using no more water than we did in 1960. Uh, the cheapest resources you have are the ones that are already built. Uh, the most expensive ones are the ones that are out there that haven't been developed yet. So our goal is to maximize the existing resources that we have on hand before we go out and develop new ones. What kind of projects do you have underway or ideas do you have about balancing conservation efforts and balancing accommodating the needs of the people? So the, the art of, uh, of water conservation is if you do it right, uh, people get to continue to do everything that they've always done with water. Uh, they're just uh, using less without really knowing it. And great examples of that are front-loading washing machines for clothes, uh, low-flow toilets, uh, showers that make you feel like you're getting more water than you actually are because of how they've been designed. So uh, the goal of conservation is not to be uh, punitive or restrictive. Uh, it's just to be creative with how you get your customers' needs met uh, by using less water. Uh, ultimately, if you reach a point where uh, it becomes something that is viewed as restrictive, we'll hear about that from our customers. And so what keeps you up at night as you plan the next five to ten years? So if you talked to me last October, what was keeping me up uh, at night was uh, being at the end of six months where we had a record low snowpack, a record warm and dry summer, uh, wondering when the fall rains were going to return to replenish our reservoirs. And the answer is they returned on uh, Halloween. Uh, and in a three-week period, we went from the lowest levels in our reservoirs in the last 30 years to being at flood control stage. So uh, waiting for Mother Nature to turn on that fall rain clock, that was uh, last fall during the rainy season. Uh, I'm looking at extreme rain events that can precipitate flooding in various areas uh, of the city, which is not happy for any of our customers or people driving on the road. Uh, so it depends on the time of year. Uh, you kind of give me one end of the spectrum, which is you feel pretty confident in our water serve the infrastructure delivering water to the, to the citizens of Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, the other end of the spectrum seems to be the sewage and, mm -hmm. and water wastewater infrastructure. Where does the garbage and recycling and yard waste come in? So um, that comes in, and what's interesting about that set of services is it's very visible in relation to the others. So uh, what we're proud of here is that our customers. Uh, have a profound passion uh, for doing the right thing uh, with what they generate. And as a result of that, uh, we are on target to hit 60% diversion of our waste stream, uh, hopefully by next year. We have a 70% goal for 2022. 
Uh, and this means that uh, whether you live in an apartment complex or a condo, downtown, north end, south end, wherever, uh, we hope that there's universal access to all three of those services. We hope we have good instructions on what you do with the various materials that you generate so that everything has a place to go and you know where it is and it's easy to do. Uh, because what we know is that we save money when we divert for either recycling or composting, and we radically lower our greenhouse gas emissions if those materials don't go to the landfill. And if you could speak to the everyday people in Seattle and give them a, a very brief message that helps them understand what they can do to make your job easier, and not just uh, out of the goodness of their heart, but because if your job is, is made easier, right. they're getting their water, uh, their waste is being taken care of, and, and so on. Well, I guess what I would offer is we always encourage our customer to look at uh, the things that we provide as resources, uh, and to use those resources wisely. Uh, that means that whatever we've built will last that much longer, will go that much further, and that means that much less money coming out of their pocketbooks on a on a monthly or a bi-monthly basis. So the choices they make and how they participate in their in our systems can have a long-term impact on how much uh, money they have to pay on their bill. If you had any other parting thoughts as to how uh, the economic and population growth, how it dovetails with, with your work here, please share. Yeah, I guess what I would offer you is uh, what we're focusing on now is the changing composition of the Seattle population. So I think for the first time in history, uh, 35 and under is a third of the population. You know, if you loosely define that as the millennials, uh, well, the millennials are making much different lifestyle choices, uh, and that affects how we've got to communicate them with the services we provide. Uh, they make choices on not having a car and using all the great uh, substitutes that are out there now besides bikes and buses and trains it's the ubers the lifts uh etc so we have to change we have to pay attention to the changing composition of our city population and we've got to reach out and make sure that the services we provide work for folks whether they're in their 90s or in their 20s ray thank you so much really appreciate you taking the time to share your perspective with me thank you i next turned to the ceo of seattle city light to hear about how his organization is responding to the city's growth. But first, I'd like to remind you of the Seattle Growth Podcast live event on October 17th at the Impact Hub. You could register at www.seattlegrowthpodcast.com backslash live. The evening kicks off at 6 p.m. with a reception serving appetizers and a cash bar. This is a rare opportunity to have a drink with a diverse group of people interested in Seattle's growth, including the esteemed discussion panel. That panel includes John Connors, who was recently named to the Forbes Midas List, a ranking of the world's top venture capital investors. Maggie Walker, who was recently named to the Puget Sound Business Journal's Women of Influence. And John Creighton, who has served on the Port of Seattle Commission for 10 years and is currently in his second stint as the commission's president. You will not want to miss this event. Visit www.seattlegrowthpodcast.com backslash live for more details. We can thank University of Washington's Burke Center for Entrepreneurship for organizing this event. For decades, the Burke Center has been bringing the community of Seattle innovators together to mentor the next generation of entrepreneurs. And now they have a startup of their own. They will soon be taking applications for a trailblazing Master of Science in Entrepreneurship. It is going to be the degree program for people who know they want to start companies. And as a center that's given over a million dollars to student entrepreneurs who have helped contribute to Seattle's growth, it is exciting to have them as a part of the conversation about the challenges and opportunities this growth brings to the city as a whole. 
Now to hear more about the challenges and opportunities presented to Seattle City Light, listen to my interview with their CEO, Larry Weiss. I am here at the Seattle Municipal Tower with Larry Weiss, CEO and General Manager of Seattle City Light. Larry, thanks for joining me today. Sure. Why don't we start off by sharing some of the exciting things going on at Seattle City Light? Well, um, I'm uh, rel- you know I'm relatively new here. I started it was uh, uh, started the first of February. So uh, and uh, I'm not new to the Northwest. I grew up here, born in Seattle, and grew up in the Northwest, but been away for many many years and have come back after being the CEO of Austin Energy the last six years. Um, and then part of that worked in California for ten years, and then worked in Washington State for. Uh, uh, more than 10 years in the power industry. So I've been in the power industry uh, most, most, most of my career. With all the construction and the people moving into Seattle, what challenges does that create for Seattle City Light? Well, uh, you know, it, it, this, is a very, this is a large downtown core, uh, Seattle, and we operate a, uh, a network. So it's an electric distribution system that is different than the electric distribution system that, for example, goes through the Ravenna neighborhood and everything, which is an, over, an overhead underground combination distribution system, whereas the network downtown is really is a network. It, it, it has two ties to places and it has some ability to self-heal itself and also uh, has some unique characteristics. And so predominantly that's what serves all of the downtown core in our commercial buildings in downtown. So when we talk about the growth of our electric system, most of that is happening within the network. And as you know, the Lake Union area is a big part of this new growth with technology and different customers from the medical side to the technology side to the technology marketing side such as Amazon um, and we're building a brand new substation uh, the Denny substation which is uh, intended to address that a lot of that growth in Lake Union and why is a an extra substation necessary walk that walk us through that well there is a capacity rating for about every substation we have so electric utilities are not all engineered the same City Light system is unique in that it has large substations, predominantly has large substations that uh, serve many distribution circuits that go out of that substation. Some utilities have smaller substations with less circuits that go out of those stations and it's just a different way of engineering. So as Seattle's electric system evolved over over time, uh, it, is, it, is, it has come to a place where it's got major stations that serve many distribution circuits. So our Broad Street substation, which is uh, down below uh, South, uh, Seattle Center, uh, that, that's reached a capacity limit, and we have capacity limits in all these stations. So um, at our distribution voltage, which is a lower voltage, so what happens is that we get too much growth and we need to build another station to provide more distribution circuits because the existing substations cannot handle it. And that's really at a place where we are. So if we do not build those substations, what would happen? We could not serve new load. There would be, there would be there's a finite amount of capacity we have to serve at these distribution voltages through these circuits. So what we have to do is basically duplicate another substation, add more distribution circuits, and serve that with transmission level voltage, which we will do from the Broad Street substation to Denny. 
And then part of the plans in the future is if it continues to grow, then we will have to bring another higher level voltage into that substation. And that, that piece of the project's out a number of years, but it's a, it is part of that. How long does it take from the moment you recognize you need a new substation to the time that it's built? Well, in this case, it's about five years. The fastest you can do it is probably in two years. But in an urban environment like this, with the land constraints and land use, um, substations are not the most popular neighbor for a lot of people to have. Although, personally, I don't find them offensive. A lot of people might. They're actually very, very quiet. And like Denny uh, Station, the stations that I built in urban environments in my career uh, have always been around the orientation of making sure that they're aesthetically looking as good as we can make them. Austin Energy also had a downtown network where I used to work. We had a challenge to build a, take an existing network station, kind of like uh, that station, well, or the broad station and put walls around it and make it integrate with uh, a large uh, residential commercial development. Uh, and, and, and that, it takes money. It's it part, we have an arts, uh, just Austin has the same thing. We have the arts, uh, contributions so we needed to make sure the walls were aesthetic had some art as a part of it not only is it engineered to provide the services that we know needs to be there but it's also designed so that it provides some um, level of curb appeal if that is possible substations where does the land come from well we purchased the land and how much does that cost well i believe that land, that piece of land was in excess of 30 million dollars i think is what the what the cost was we do own other pieces of land in our service area normally you go through a really extensive process to let everybody know way ahead of time what you're planning to put there and i believe that was done here like a long time ago that was that was put here i know that at one point in my career i knew that 10 years from then we were going to need to build a substation and the land became available, so I instructed them to build it, fence it, and sign it, and let everybody know that this is the site of a future substation so that all the adjacent landowners would know. And how much does it cost to build the substation? Well, that depends on a lot of variables. The substations can contain uh, multiple transformers, multiple switch gear, and there's a lot of technology stuff I could go into here, but uh, they're expensive. Ballpark? Out, outside, well, outside of the transmission and outside of the land purchase, this is uh, in excess of $50 million. And then who pays for that, the $50 well, million we, plus? Well, what we do is we borrow money for it. We put it into our mortgage, if you will. And so all customers pay for it as time goes on. But, but let me just say that for the services that are provided to the individual buildings that are out there, they pay for their services. Okay. So if you want to think about it this way, we pay for the uh, what we call the backbone, the, the, the stations, the distribution feeders that everybody takes off of. But when a customer comes and accesses that to build their own service to their own building, uh, they're, they're responsible for that component. So building a new transfer station because of the economic activity in South Lake Union, somebody in the central district will see a change in their bill. Correct. Uh, it, the substations are all a part of our grid, if you will, and all customers share in the costs uniformly of, of that, with the exception of what is built specifically to serve another customer. The, uh, the controversial piece that can come is that 
the um, question of existing customers saying, how come I have to pay for the growth for a new customer to come? But that has always been there. It's always been there, and that's a part of the philosophy of electric utilities and rate making. I want to back up to the cost of Denny, too, that there is several components of it. There's a separate transmission piece component of it, there is the land piece of it, and then there's the station piece of it. So what I told you about with the substation piece is only a part of that. In the network, yeah. It's like almost $300 million for everything. And so $300 million for the new substation serving Lake well, Union. Well, uh, let me just put it to you this way. It's $300 million for a very large system improvement, including transmission, the substation, the network, and all of that. So it's, 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 uh, it's far more than just a substation. And what's the time horizon to pay that $300 million back? Well, we usually do all of our debts uh, on, what we do is we have a portfolio of debt. We cannot keep rolling forward and if we can refinance and everything else. So generally speaking, it's in excess of 20 years. And can you walk me through other areas in Seattle that might be needing a new substation in the next five, 10 years? I believe that's the only one right now. Uh, we are doing, however, an upgrade at Union substation, which is a very compact and uh, substation. And what we do when we have not much space to work with, and this is pretty prevalent in uh, uh, utilities that serve big urban areas like this, is that if we don't have a big footprint and we don't have a lot of room, air is a natural insulator for our high voltage. And if we don't have enough air or space, if you will, then we go to a technology called gas insulated substations, GIS. Okay. So Union Street right now is going through a GIS upgrade. Very expensive, very, very, very expensive. But basically, if you can envision this, this is a very small footprint where we have cast pieces that go around all the conductors and are filled with gas. And that gas is an insulator, so that it allows us to very tightly build stations. You'll see more of that, that'll be more expensive. And is that just a systematic upgrade that needed to happen, or did something to do with the change in the environment make that necessary? It's, it's, part, it's, part, of, it's part of both. It's part of the growth, primarily. But it's also part of new technology. What the Seattle City Light is seeing right now for downtown growth is pretty phenomenal, as you know. All these city blocks that are being uh, torn down and a new building put in, the new building that's going in is bigger than the one that was there. But interestingly enough, on a square footage basis, it uses far more less energy per square foot because of new technology, new building codes, new lighting in particular, and new uh, HVAC heating and ventilating, air conditioning technology. So that's that's it. That's very interesting. So as Seattle sees these new building stock come in, these new building, uh, what we're really seeing is some very innovative technology going into the, to the architects and engineers that design these buildings. Since I've been here, there's been some questions about our forecast. So we're, we have a real decline in energy sales going on right now, which is, you know, hurts our bottom line. But the reality of it is, is that as these new buildings come on, a lot of the energy sales will come back, but they won't come back in the way it would have been had those buildings been designed with old technology. Going back to the substations and, and the uh, capacity, do we see in any of the residential areas that are growing or some of these urban villages, do you have a sense as to how much room they have to grow before you need a new substation? We're not seeing the pressure in the, in the residential areas. Uh, and I'll tell you why. A lot of it is because a lot of these homes are, you know, Seattle still has a 
a lot of a large amount of oil heated homes. So we're not using electricity to heat these homes, or if it's not oil, it's natural gas. Our energy efficiency programs that have been running here for a long time are doing their job. Uh, they're they're saving average megawatts year over year. That's a part of our plan. Instead of buying the power to serve those customers, we're conserving it, and so that's helping us not have additional power supply costs. So that's that's one of our strategies here. So in the residential area, we're not seeing the large amounts of load growth uh, because, again, as a home is remodeled or rebuilt, let's say a vacant lot in Ballard is an older home is taken out and new buildings are put in, their energy use per square foot is, goes down because of lighting, technology, better insulation, better quality materials. So no, there aren't any substations on our drawing board to serve residential customers. And are there any other challenges that come to mind beyond the need for substations? Rights of way will always be a challenge. In, in order to maintain the level of reliability that we want to have, we need to make sure that we are by ourselves in these, you know, in these downtown underground environments. And we have a lot of competition, a lot of cable providers, a lot of other things that are in the dirt down underneath the streets. Uh, so we're having to really maintain and protect uh, our right rights away. And similarly, when you get outside of the downtown core and you get into residential areas that are more overhead right now, I, I, I think that one of the one of the, the challenges at all utilities is that if we look at residential neighborhoods where they would like to be underground. I, I, I don't think lots of times my experience with it is this, is that let's say we have a neighborhood that says, you know, oh, we'd like to get all of our services underground so the trees don't get in there and everything else. And, you know, and that, and that may indeed really help outages. The issue comes down to this. It comes down to fine. We'll put our piece underground, but every customer has got to pay to have their electric service paid for to connect to our system. We don't do that piece. And so when people see the price tag to that, they go, oh, I think overhead's just fine. That's that's a story everywhere. So when you look at these uh, ideas of uh, doing a mass underground of a, sub, of, of, a, of a neighborhood, for example, that's where that reality uh, becomes pretty obvious to these folks that, oh, the electric utility's not gonna pay for everything. They're only gonna pay for the piece that all the ratepayers own, right? And so what about power supply in general. So you said there's substations in terms of distributing it in the capacity, but power supply in general, or are we nearing any cap in terms of needing to find new sources of energy? Well, first of all, on the power supply side, no. City Light is in good shape in terms of the amount of generation we have and the amount of purchases that we make. We purchase power for the Bonneville Power Administration, which is all hydro, and 96% you know, hydro. There's a little tiny bit of nuclear in there from the uh, Columbia Generating Station that Bonneville's responsible for. So by de facto, we've got that in our portfolio. But the rest of the power that we supply is from our own hydro. And so our own hydro comes into our system a couple different ways. It comes into from the Cedar uh, River projects. It comes into uh, us through neighboring utility interconnections and through Bonneville interconnections. Our boundary resources was up on the Ponderay River in Northeast Washington. That comes to us through Bonneville transmission. Uh, and then our Skagit projects come, all that power comes down and touches the Bothell substation in southern Snohomish County. And that was, that's the historic interconnection there. And then those lines are integrated in with Puget and with City Light, and that's how we get our power supply here. 
We run our all of our own generation uh, to balance our loads here. So City Light is uh, what's considered a balancing authority, which uh, there are 35 in the Western Interconnected Grid that do uh, manage their own resources day to day. So our control center, which is over in Ballard, uh, those people, hour to hour, 15 minutes to 15 minutes, are monitoring our loads and how much generation we have and purchases we have. So uh, we're fortunate and uh, the question about renewable energy and more of that is, you know, we need to uh, always encourage customers who want to do some of the rooftop solar or they want to do something locally. We're, we're, we very much encourage that. But uh, more importantly, the larger scale renewable resources that might be built in other parts of the region in the Northwest, we are interested in that. And there'll be more to come about that later, I think. It's been rumored that we've, in the Puget Sound region, we've added enough people to fill the current city of Tacoma. So even if we did that again in the next five years and added 200, 300,000 people to the area, we should be fine in terms of our energy production? Yeah, well, keep in mind that we don't serve people. We serve buildings. And so um, it depends on what those loads are. If those commercial buildings were all uh, very significant loads. One of the unique things about City Light is we don't have a lot of industry. So uh, by contrast, my former utility, 40% of our sales were to a, to a very large industry, very, very large industry. And so Seattle has a, has a very small amount of that. And that, that in a lot of ways enables us to uh, meet a lot of growth in the future without, without a lot of new resources because as residential growth goes in our service area, like there's not a lot of vacant land, right? And like I talked about before, when something's replaced, it's usually replaced with a much more efficient, much more um, up-to-code type facility uh, that may also be using uh, natural gas as a heating source or uh, if it's available, that's what they'll probably choose. And then from an HR perspective, as the economy is booming here and there's more construction, does that affect how you run the organization here? Does that create any challenges for your... Well, it does. I mean, uh, cost, the cost of uh, operating here is, is a, in this environment is expensive. Our employees uh, are, are seeing the cost of living go, going up. And uh, we have employees that live a long ways away from their jobs in downtown. And uh, that's, that, that, will, that will be a challenge um, as time goes on. And we'll have to make some strategic decisions uh, along about you know how, how how do we mitigate that? You know I think to a large degree, Seattle's really got a, a, a excellent mass transit system, so most of our employees I think use use that that system. If we did not have that, I think I don't think it would be sustainable to have that many places we have that work down in this building, for example, downtown. So then the question is, well, where do you where do you move to if you do that? As you look to the next five years, what is at the top? Uh, of your priorities as it relates to uh, economic and population growth here in Seattle? The next five years, I think we need to stay, we need to stay focused on the construction projects that we've initiated, the, the upgrades that we initiated at stations, the new stations, the, the, the enhancements to the performance of our system to be reliable. Uh, and um, so that's, uh, I think, what we really have to address right now. We need to address um, the safety of our work environment for all of our employees as you're working with more traffic through downtown and 
I know everybody sees our network trucks parked all over the place because we're all, we have employees underneath the street in many different locations every day. And their safety, uh, keeping them out of harm's way with other traffic and everything is very important. And how do you visualize yourself overcoming that challenge? Well, I, I, I think that our training and our communications with our employees about how to uh, create that safe work zone is, is very important. I think we also need to remember that no matter how fast or how much pressure we have on us to perform the new construction and get it done, it, 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 is, it is not done if it's not safe. And so we need to slow down, make sure that we our employees are really taking the time to make sure they understand the procedures and the protocols we need to go through to do that. That tends to happen in a real busy construction cycle. You, you know, you get so busy doing things. Um, I think uh, the other part of it is is that we don't want to inconvenience customers and taking them out of service, which means that we're doing a lot of things at night. So we have a lot more crews working at night, which may be obvious to customers, may not be, but we have to schedule a lot of work, shut down streets at nighttime instead of the daytime and that. and. The other, the other part of that is to make sure that we are got our different units of our organization talking to each other so some of them know that you know, we don't want to build everything all at the same time. We need to really be careful about that. And are there any other challenges that economic and population growth in Seattle is creating for your group? Well, I think that our, uh, our, our, our talent that we can hire to utility and the compensation that we make, you know, we, we, don't, com we don't compete with cities. Uh, very few cities in the United States have a big electric utility. We're, uh, you know, Tacoma's got one. Uh, they're not as large as we are and don't operate the resources like we are we have, but um, but they have similar challenges. But we have um, a, a growing workforce. They're very, uh, you know, there's a lot of training, a lot of technology that goes into the, to uh, what they do, and um, and. The fact of the matter is we have a tough time competing. Good employees working here will mean better service ultimately and a better and more reliable uh, distribution transmission system. And so if you could get a message out to the people of Seattle, what would you tell the people of Seattle? To be understanding when the roads are torn up and we're in there working, that would be one of them. Uh, to, to recognize that um, when we talk about changing our electric rates, and making them different than they are today, that because we're encouraging less sales, we still need revenue to operate the wire system. So as you see us transition to a wires kind of charge. So in other words, irrespective of whether you need electricity or not, but you are connected to our grid, it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, it's an opportunity cost. You have, you have always at your fingertips the ability to pull load into your into your residence and that comes with a that comes with a price to serve from us it really has nothing to do with how much you buy it has to do with the fact that you are connected but there's also a really uh, strong requirement on my part to be fiscally responsible to all the ratepayers of the utility and what I'm really concerned about is making sure that it's equitable so as we provide new technology and tools and other things for certain customers who have the ability to do it, they've got their electric car, they can plug it in, they've got solar, they've got all these things, and they get all these incentives from us. 
What I really want to make sure is that there isn't, there isn't another customer that's paying for that. Making sure that those that are less fortunate and, and you know, that we're, that we're providing um, a really a, a social justice system that says that just because you can't afford to, to do a lot of these fancy things and remodel your house and do all these energy efficiency things that might be there, um, you, should, you shouldn't really be paying for it unless it's for the betterment of the whole. So we're out of time. I just want to give you one minute to express uh, concluding thoughts on economic and population growth and how it affects uh, City Light. Uh, it, has, it, it has a cost and benefit, and our job is to make sure that it's equitable and fair for all of our ratepayers, and that we're continuing to provide the high level of reliability that this utility has provided in the past and uh, a good workforce and all of that. So it, it brings a lot of challenges to us. Um, you know, there's challenges when you're not having any growth either, too. There's no construction going on. So it's, it's pretty, pretty exciting. And uh, technology's uh, ever-changing. It'll be interesting to see what's out there in 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Larry, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Really you appreciate bet. your knowledge and perspective here. Thank mm -hmm. you. You bet. That is all for this week's episode. I hope you will subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and join me for the taping of the next episode of Seattle Growth Podcast on Monday, October 17th. The episode will feature my questions and the live audience questions uh, for the panel of John Connors, John Creighton, and Maggie Walker. The event begins with a reception, and I'd love to meet you and hear how Seattle's growth has affected you. Check out www.seattlegrowthpodcast.com backslash live to register. I look forward to seeing you on Monday, October 17th.